To start with, I just want to settle something right now. Uh, as I feel like I hope I made clear in the title up there, uh, this is specifically covering Revelations. I will admit that I find myself interested to go ahead and play through Birthright and Conquest in my copious spare time. If they ever come out on the Switch, I might actually pick them up and you know, have a chance at going through them. But this was just going through Revelation, the third option. And I want to talk about that before anything else, because... Uh, how do I put this? I love the idea, but I question the business model. Because, let's ignore Revelations for a moment. You know, Birthright and Conquest. Do you side with Nor, or do you side with Hoshido? Now, the setup to that is actually pretty damn good, in my opinion. In fact, it's probably one of the better setups that I've seen in this franchise so far. You are born... <laughs> you have blood relations with one family, you think. And you have, you know, adoptive relations with another family. These two families are effectively the noble houses of these opposing empires, these kingdoms, I should say. And each of these kingdoms have had issues and struggles over the past due to their different geography. I mean, there's a big canyon between the two, the chasm, you might say. But other than that, they have it rough, they have it nice. Now, this is pretty much textbook, you know, you're going to have problem situation. Because really, there's only three possible scenarios here, roughly. War, <laughs> right? You know, war. Uh, a very long-standing peace trade cooperation, which can go wrong at any time. Or one of them dying out because it just can't sustain itself anymore for whatever reason. So it makes sense, but I have to feel... It, it was one of the things that bothered me. It just, it's just funny, because this came up back in uh, Fire Emblem 4 as well, if you're remembering that, with, uh... Thrace? Oh, Thracia, Thracia, something like that. God, I'm sorry. I've, I'm, trying to keep, I'm trying to keep so many names straight in my head right now. Um, I have a bunch written down here. But, that in that Thracia, something like that. In that case, though, they had special advantages that helped offset the fact that they lived in this hellish wasteland. What the hell did the Norians have? Like maybe I just completely missed it, but I didn't see anything that indicated that they had some kind of thing that enabled them to have some benefit and use that in some way to establish themselves, to make it work as as far as their their existence as a nation. And I know that's a weird thing to bring up. But I bring it up because having gone straight from Fire Emblem 4 to 8 to whatever this one is, the contrast in storytelling between them is stark. 4, in terms of pure story, felt like the most grounded and believable. It, it felt like everything that was happening there made sense, logically was pursuant to the rules as established within the setting. It felt like something I could see actually happening. 8, eh, 8 had some issues mostly in the fact in the factor of the fact that it was kind of just a typical story but it still allowed realistic and believable things to happen as a consequence of the tropes that were being utilized this one doesn't feel like that it feels it feels like it has less depth to it and that, that, that's something that makes perfect sense in my head, and I'm going to fail miserably at explaining to you, so I hope you understand at least a little bit. Make sure the mic's working. There we go. Okay, mic's working. We're good. Because someone who's like, hey, we're going to do this, and 
there's a logical reason for why they're doing it. There's an explanation for why they're doing it. The consequences of it make sense in context. Everyone around them behaves appropriately in reaction to it. Um, and there's this historical or, or societal or cultural backing for this action to be happened, right? That's, that's, the, that's what I tend to think of as depth in storytelling. You could say... <sighs> It's pretty much... God, I'm failing so miserably here. It's the exact opposite of just go with it. Because in a just go with it uh, case, we're told they're the bad guys, and or they're doing this, or they're going to help them. And we're just kind of expected to go with it in terms of storytelling, even if that doesn't quite make sense in character. It doesn't have to make sense in character because it's a story, right? See, the thing is, in my opinion, while those types of stories can be enjoyable they're always going to lack the same feeling, the same depth. I, I want to use the term complexity because, and not convolution, that's a different thing. But the, they're going to lack the same depth that a, a differently styled story is where things will happen that make sense in universe. Let me give you a direct example of what I'm talking about. Probably the only time in all of this story where something happened that was just like, bam, that was perfect and that's exactly what that should do. The, you know, was in the Revelations arc when you go off and say, I'm going to do my own thing. and uh, Guys, guys, okay. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to choose between you. I can't choose between you. But listen, there's this, there's this evil enemy that I can't tell you anything about. I can't even reveal its existence to you, but trust me, they're the ones behind everything. So you got to bear with me on this. And everyone's response is, what? <laughs> Hang on, what? <laughs> right? That's the only time where that actually made perfect sense to me. And, of course, then we spend, you know, the first chunk of Revelation trying to convince everyone about the truth of what's going on. <sighs> now, granted, I haven't played through Birthright and Conquest, so maybe they have moments like that, too. But overall, the setting and the characters felt a lot more like this should happen because story rather than this should happen because it is a logical consequence of events. And it did detract from my enjoyment from this overall. Don't mistake me, I did enjoy this. Um, I'm talking about this a lot, by the way, because I don't have a lot to say about the gameplay of this going. It's Awakening again. <laughs> right? I mean, I enjoyed Fire Emblem Awakening, but it was Awakening again. I do have one gameplay thing to talk about. Um, and I, so I've, I've gotten way off topic. Let's rewind a little bit back to the central point here. Being forced to say, oh god, I have to pick between these two sides is a neat idea. Divvying those up financially, that's a little bit more questionable. On the one hand, I do understand the desire to basically produce what, what is, from what I am told, and I do have to say that because I haven't played Birthright and Conquest, what is functionally two completely separate games. Like, th these two routes are utterly incongruent with each other. I know that. You know, what happens to Xander, for god's sakes. Um... So as you're going down one route, uh, you are experiencing effectively an entirely separate game. This is not the Pokemon thing, in other words. This is not Pokemon, you know, yellow, blue, green, red. This is Pokemon Yellow and Pokemon Platinum, which happen to be at the same game. So I do kind of understand the desire to spend, you know, to charge more money in order to get both things. On the other hand, though, from what I understand, and I've talked to a few Fire Emblem fans about this, this is not how this was posited. The original idea was you get to Chapter 5, and then you get to pick. And everyone was like, woo, that sounds awesome. You know, this big, deep, moral choice. And I'll get to the choice in a second. 
But it, and then they later revealed, eh, we're going to split them up. I can't verify that. I wasn't able to verify that fact. But I do have to admit, if that is what happened, that makes it a little more unpleasant. And, of course, it presents the obvious problem. Which one do you pick? Now, we do know that uh, one of them, Birthright, I believe, was specifically made for fan new fans. You know, people who liked Awakening. And Conquest was made for people who liked the more classic Fire Emblems. But the problem is both of those are purely gameplay things. What about people who want a particular storytelling experience, right? People who are predominantly in this for the story are probably going to want to buy both, which of course is double dipping, which is why this can be seen as kind of a negative thing with regards to the you know, charging twice for the game function. So you get the point. I, I can see both sides of this argument. I'm not sure what I think about it overall. It probably doesn't help that, you know, in order to get Revelations, the one I went through, I had to actually buy it as a DLC of an existing copy, Conquest, if you're wondering. Um, so it's like, okay. <laughs> right, so let's talk about the choice, because I think the choice is one of the better aspects of the core game. In an ideal world, I would love, especially if they port this to the Switch, I will buy this game if they do what I'm about to say and port it to the Switch. Because if you have all three in one, that's awesome to me. Because, first of all, from a purely gameplay perspective, you have a choice. Duh. But also because you have increased replayability, because completely different story arc. But because the actual dilemma is exactly what it should be. It's probably one of the best presented concepts in the entire game, in my opinion. The conflict, although threadbare and surface level, between Nor and Hoshido is something that, you know, is not just going to be solved by us holding hands and saying kumbaya. This is a situation of two, uh, two powers, two kingdoms, which already have a volatile relationship with each other and have just had what they believe to be military incursions on each other. They've already been skirmishing. I mean, the the faceless, right? I mean, this is already a thing. So the idea of these two nations being at the point where they are effectively, we're going to war, no really war with each other, and you being right in the middle is, in my opinion, well-constructed. Because they make a point very clearly and obviously that you, the player character, the Avatar, I'm just going to call it the Avatar from now on because everyone else does, the Avatar... I named mine Lore. <laughs> the Avatar has direct personal and political connections to both sides. They have a line on the throne in both categories. Debatable and not at the first in line in both cases, but nevertheless they have that kind of position. They are effectively a prince or princess. And they happen to very much care about their respective siblings, step-siblings, adopted siblings, cousins, etc., etc., right? So no matter what, you, the Avatar, as a character, obviously give a damn about people on both sides, and they have reached a point where they can no longer reconcile. The only thing they really have in common is you. I like that. I like the construction of that dilemma. And I also like that they offer us, as weird as this may sound, they offer us the third way out. Now, I want to explain that really quickly. Because I've heard uh, several people say before... Uh, that that kind of cheapens it, that, you know, offering the good ending is, is a way to cheapen a dilemma. And I, I totally get that perspective. In fact, I myself have spoken against that many, many years ago. But over the last several years of spending you know, seven days a week analyzing fiction and going through many, 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 many different games, hundreds of games, I've come to a slightly different perspective. 
Anybody who's seen my streams especially knows that I'm really, really big on player choice. I like it to be on me what kind of experience I choose to to go through. Now, there's obviously limitations that that doesn't apply to everything. But for example, I would rather you give me options of difficulty rather than forcing difficulty on me. I would rather I get to choose, God, I really want a hard mode for this, rather than you forcing it on me. That kind of a thing, right? So that applies in this case, because if I want to just honor the dilemma, then I just do so. I just ignore revelations, push that to the side mentally, and say, okay, there's no third power. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't think Anankos, I'm probably not saying that right, but I kept having trouble with the pronunciation, Anankos. I, I don't think Anankos is even mentioned in the other two. He's obviously behind it. I mean, they've obviously constructed the story so that Anankos and Vala and the Invisible Kingdom and Garon are all there, but it's not even a part of the equation. In fact, it could be argued that, based on what I've read up, again, haven't played them, of Birthright and Conquest, Anankos' overall plans are still foiled with the destruction of Garon and with the peace between the two kingdoms, since Anankos himself is very weak outside of his realm, and he's stuck there, and he just lost a huge chunk of his power because Garon's destroyed, so... Even if you choose to an, an honor the dilemma, it doesn't mean your choice is meaningless, is what I'm trying to say. It would have been too easy for them to be like, all right, you've completed Birthright, but here's this cutscene where the great true villain is like, ha ha, little do they know, dun dun dun, the end. Which would have just kind of invalidated the whole thing. In other words, while Revelation is technically the true ending, the golden ending, the best ending, whatever you want to call that, it is not the only satisfying ending. And that's important. You still can honor the dilemma of being forced to choose and all of the hardships and terrors of, of, of losing family in one way or another and losing friends and the death and horror of war. Or you can choose to go with the golden ending. I like that choice. And I'm probably going to get a ton of flack for that opinion, but it is still my honest opinion, so I'm still giving it. Now, that being said, I, hmm, I do want to comment on one other gameplay thing before we get to the story proper, and that is the final battle with Anankos. Now, I know that's a weird thing to comment on, but it was the only battle that really stuck in my head. Because based on the construction of events, we have Ryoma over there, Xander over there, and you. And probably Azure and a few others, but you get the point. Um, and the boss arena is designed such that his attacks hit large areas, but only areas that are inclined to be vectors of attack for certain parts of him. And his health is split up into these three points. And so I found it wonderfully appropriate from an in-character lore perspective, thematic perspective, to split up my forces, to have Ryoma attack over here and his people, Xander attack over there, and the Avatar attack over here, to split up the fight to show the entire point of what's going on in the Revelation arc, to, to, to literally show the kingdoms uniting in order to take down um, Mr. Anankos. I did like that. It was the only battle that really sold, uh, sang to me in the Revelations arc. I'm, I'm told that Conquest has much better overall gameplay and presentation. I don't know. I, obviously, I don't know. So, um, speaking of the Avatar, I like how, once again, we are playing an Avatar who is uh, functionally nameless, but also directly related to an ancient dragon who happens to be... like Right? I mean, did, haven't we already done this? I feel like we've already done this. Oh, well. Um, 
Speaking of which, actually, before I talk about the Avatar, I want to talk about, and I wrote down their names so I wouldn't forget it, Severa, uh, Owain, and Inigo. That was such a missed opportunity, in my opinion. Like, I'm, I'm sorry. If you're going, it is in my opinion that if you're going to do something, you should embrace it and do it wholeheartedly. And those three and their inclusion in Fates felt like the exact opposite of that. It felt like they were with it. They weren't really all that relevant to the story, even though they kind of should have been, to any of the story for that matter. And even though they knew certain things that they otherwise could have informed, that never comes up. And yet at the same time, this isn't a reference, right? This isn't just some kind of cute, oh, look, there's a, there's a, there's a guy named Sid, right? That, that, that's a reference. It's not the same Sid. It's just a, 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 a freaking Easter egg, right? But no, these are the actual three characters from Awakening summoned here by Anankos' soul, which is what I'm going to call him from now on, right? But they have no relevance. Make them more important. Make them part of what starts the story or make them help the development of the Avatar or make them be crucial to finding out the truth of what's going on or something. Instead, it's just like, and they're here. What? That aggravated the crap out of me. Because it could be argued that this is a direct sequel to Awakening, since it is something that happens immediately after Awakening, but this is a sequel to Awakening in the same exact sense that Majora, well, in a very, very similar sense, that Majora's Mask is a direct sequel to Ocarina of Time. It's technically true, but there's nothing real connecting the two games. And that irritated me. They have this opportunity to do this, ah, whatever, whatever. It just bothered me. Avatar, right? So one of the things I did like about the Avatar is it felt like this Avatar was different than the Awakening Avatar. The Awakening Avatar was this brilliant mind genius, right? That was at least the point. That he was the kind of person, or she, they, were the kind of person who would look at the tactical battlefield and say, okay. And they would consider very, very carefully, and they're like, okay. And they would come up with these stratagems and tactics. and This would all be great. This one, obviously, is supposed to be a tactician in the same way, since it's the player character you're playing a war game. But... Instead, in lore, this avatar is more presented as someone who is very uh, observant. Now, I know that sounds like a weird thing to point out, but I've always said that someone who is truly observant and with the analytical mind to back that up can adapt on the fly much better than most other people can. Um, the sword duel with, I can't remember his name, forgive me, is an excellent example of this. Uh, this is something I've read about. In a, well, okay, that's not true, but... Point being... <laughs> God, I can't remember his freaking name. That's actually irritating me now. I've forgotten so many names. I like the idea that this avatar is someone who just pays attention. Someone who can actually look out there and say, okay, you know, they're doing such and such. In other words, it's the difference between someone who can map out an entire game of chess before you move your first piece or someone who is watching what what a, a football player is doing and react to them when they try to make a goal. Um, I mentioned Nora and Hoshido. In fact, I don't actually have much else to add to that. Uh, Vala is a mess. I'll talk about Vala more when we get to my, my closing thoughts here. Uh, I want to talk about Ryomo. Uh, Ryoma? Okay, I'm done. I have, I have nothing to say about him. I had this problem with several characters in this game. It's not that they were bad characters so much as they, I, I felt there was nothing really worth sharing or talking about. 
Uh, anybody who watched my stream of Awakening knows that there were several characters that I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I was interested enough in the characters to bother to raise their support so I could get more conversations, so I could get more characterization for these people. I didn't really feel that way in Revelations. Uh, most of the characters were just kind of there. I did find it interesting that Lilith was practically a non-character. I say that because apparently she's a lot more important in the other two games, but in Revelations it's like, ah, that's it. <laughs> right? Um, I actually, this is going to sound really stupid, but I actually recognized several of these characters because I actually played, I keep saying actually, I played Fire Emblem Heroes, I think, on the phone uh, for a little bit back when that first came out to try it out, see what I thought about it. And I got a whole bunch of characters, so I didn't know who they were, and so I was like, oh, it's Elise, hey! <laughs> right? Woot! Oh, yeah, here, get, get in my party, let's go, let's go, because she was one of my main healers over in Fire Emblem Heroes. Go figure given uh, what happens with her. I do want to talk about Xander. Like, I legitimately want to talk about Xander, because I, I want to know if I'm the only person who thinks that Xander is not a good person. I, I'm, I'm honestly curious. As ever, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this. To me, Xander struck me as someone who was very weak-willed, someone who didn't have either strong convictions or a strong sense of, let's call it, action. And he struck me as someone who is a little bit too much whitewashed for who and what he is. He just goes along with a lot of really horrible stuff and is just totally cool with it, even though he's not. Let me use a slight parallel to explain what I'm talking about. If you are facing a dragon, you know, I know, bad example, you know, let's say a T-Rex shows up, bam, there's a T-Rex, and it's staring you down, and you're like, holy crap, there's a T-Rex there. You're probably afraid. Being capable of doing something despite that fear, that is bravery, that is courage. Being unafraid is not bravery or courage. That's a completely separate thing. That's just being unafraid. Uh, that might come from confidence or lack of understanding or whatever. Now, I mention this because someone who is strong of will, someone who has strong convictions and is willing to act on them, is someone who has strong convictions and is willing to act on them. Xander was like, no, Dad, we totally shouldn't do this thing. No, come on. Stop, stop with the torture and the death and the horribleness. Okay, I guess I'll go torture and death and horribleness. If you say so. It, it actually pissed me off after a bit. Um, seeing how much Xander was just willing to go with it. Uh, I actually did uh, watch a bit of both Conquest and Birthright to get a little bit more insight into some of the characters. And I remember seeing this cutscene where Xander's like... <sighs> God, I can't remember the wording, but he's trying to convince Garon. Like, no, we shouldn't do this. Ah, this is wrong. Don't you understand? And Garon's like, you're my son. We must do this. Uh, I'll talk about Garon in a minute. And Xander's just like, okay. He's like, he's like, but he, he doesn't do anything about it. The first time he actually does anything is, is the Elise thing, which I kind of referenced earlier. And that's just suicide. In fact, he could have made that situation a lot better if he'd opened his damn mouth, but I digress. So, I point this out, though, because I feel like Xander really is his father's son. Um... So let's talk about Nor really quickly here, because uh, I should have saved that segue. Ah, screw it. Let's just let's just keep going with the segue. Let's talk about Garon. So Garon is cartoonishly, laughably, hysterically evil. This is someone who Captain Planet villains would look at and be like, "What is wrong with you, dude?" 
And I mention that because even though it is perfectly logical and has an explanation, I still feel like it's not really the best writing because all it did was completely pull me out of Garon as a character, right? <laughs> if he had a mustache he was twirling in every scene, it wouldn't even begin to surprise me. It's even worse because this is the classic uh, RPG trope all over again. Like, we, we just talked about this last week in Fire Emblem 8. Oh, he used to be a kind and nice guy, but then he became horrifically evil. Yeah, no, there's nothing going on there. <sighs> but I bring this up with the segue regarding Xander, because one of the things I noticed is that in the backstory, in the back history of Nor. Um, Nor? Hmm. Geron was not a good king. He was a kind person, you know, a nice person, and he apparently loved women, really, really loved women. But he, his biggest flaw was the fact that he wasn't able to understand the needs of being a king and a leader in such a society in which, you know, inheritance is through birth. He basically was just, okay, whatever. <laughs> just like his son, when his own concubines and wives and other women just started bickering and fighting and getting much, much worse with each other, he just kind of let it happen. He probably grumbled a bit, and he said, no, you should stop this. But he didn't do anything about it. And, of course, he engineered this situation in the first place by refusing to be a king. Now, <laughs> I mean, if you... This is going to sound weird, but I'm not trying to show, throw any moralistic mud at this guy, even though I do think that, that I'm not in favor of that personally for myself. That doesn't make it wrong. That's just something I'm not in favor of. But I am definitely throwing mud from a political perspective. If you are a king of a nation with rules of inheritance, and you have multiple wives and lots of kids, what do you think's going to happen? Well, funnily enough, what actually happened to Nor was something like that. And again, one of the bits of the story that actually made perfect sense. In fact, one of the only things that I found that didn't quite make sense to me, well, I don't want to say it that way, but one of the only things that amused me that, that didn't quite line up with the pattern is so many of those kids and stepkids and you know, all the stepbrothers and step-siblings and all that all kind of got along with each other a lot better than they should have given the massive amount of infighting that was going on just above them and often involving them, as we learn from some of the support conversations. So he wasn't what I would call a good king, even before he died and was replaced by a slime monster. <laughs> I mean, my point being, I really do feel Xander follows after him in that suit. But let's talk about that slime king thing. Let's go ahead and keep this segue going. So he's replaced by a slime monster, which is the in-universe explanation for why he's... <laughs> and that's something I wanted to talk about. Because... One of the things I've noticed a lot in analyzing fiction is that a writer or writing team will sometimes say, well, I don't know how to write such and such in a complex, in-depth, subtle way. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to write it in a surface, simple, normal way, and then I'm going to write an in-lore explanation for why it is that way. Now... I bet a lot of you can come up with examples of what I'm talking about. Because I bet a lot of you have heard the argument that goes something along the lines of, oh, well, of course such and such is acting that way. It's because in-universe reason A. Right? I bet a lot of you have heard that argument. 
And in my opinion, while that can and does make sense, I've made that argument too, by the way, just to make that clear. While that can and does make sense, I do feel like we need to still acknowledge, well, there's some issues here, right? And I felt that Garon being you know, snidely whiplash actively detracted from my enjoyment of the story in multiple respects, because even though it makes sense, ultimately it is once again the situation, I feel like I've said this before recently, where, I'm not, where I can't really analyze Garon as a character, because there isn't Garen as a character. There's just this meat puppet, which happens to con- include some of the power of Anang- Anankos. God, I have so much trouble with that name. And he's just like, <laughs> right? I-, I feel like I've said this before recently. For some strange reason. Come on, Fire Emblem, stop doing this. <laughs> I do want to talk briefly about Iago and Han. Or Han, if you prefer. I tend to say Han because Star Wars and because I tend to aw my A's out. Uh, Han and Iago, Han, whatever, they're both a, an exact example of why a nation can basically fall to crap in short order. Funnily enough, this exact same thing happened back in Fire Emblem uh, 8. Yeah, 8. eight. Sorry, make sure that I have the number right. This exact same thing happened in Fire Emblem 8. In fact, actually, it happened in Fire Emblem 2, now that I think about it. But the point being, someone evil gets in charge, and that evil person says, you know what? I could have competent and intelligent and well-meaning, you know, people in charge, but why don't I get someone who is willing to do horrible things and be evil and put them in charge instead? In other words, if if there is a nation where there's an evil king and everyone else is good, to really, really great, you know, completely paraphrase this because that's the wrong word, to completely use a very basic example, there we go. It's probably a word from what I'm thinking of. So everyone's good, but the king is evil. That's not going to last. The king's going to be like, oh, and the people will put up for a while, and then they will off with his head, and then they'll get a new king or queen, right? Or they'll make a council, or maybe they'll follow some giant dragon with eyeballs in its mouth. I don't know. But the way this works is the evil king or queen. I'm going to say king because I'm speaking specifically of Garon here. We'll say, okay, well, I'm going to replace you, and you, and you, and I need you to be in charge, and I need you further up. And that's actually something that's relevant, and I want to bring that up, because it feels like Geron and Anankos both were specifically plotting and manipulating this entire situation. Now, the reason I'm making that point is because... I feel like something that Fire Emblem has told me several times before isn't true or is is badly written, but at the same time as it's presented has its own alternate solution that still makes sense to me. Let me explain what I mean. We've been told how many times now that dragons, as they get older, they just go, and they become all savage. I believe the specific reference is that they give in to their more primal instincts, Right? So they give in, and they're like, yes, oh, death, destruction, blah, I mean, Anankos himself ended up burning that, vill- that, that, that forest, excuse me, right? So, why is it they're still fully cognizant, intelligent, and more than capable of doing long-term planning? That doesn't strike me as bestial or primal. That strikes me as um, insane? Or, actually, to use another word, a far more specific word, I feel like it, it's something closer to delirium. 
I have the theory, and it is purely a theory, that what happens to these dragons across the Fire Emblem series is that they literally go delirious, that whatever they were, they are not anymore. They stop being that over time, and basically the more extreme and horrible aspects of their personality get elongated until that's all that's left of them. If you're paying attention, the literal curse of Anankos and what he does to others like Gunter and uh, Mikoto, I think? God, I don't think I wrote that one down. And, of course, arguably Garon, are all examples of this, taking you know what they had and elongating and, and exemplifying the extreme of what they felt in the negative aspects, in the negative category of their existence. Now, to me, that helps make it make a lot more sense, and it helps kind of so- solidify something that I was thinking about. Because as I was going through Revelations, I was like... This doesn't sound right. Revelations and fates in general feels like it's a classic Greek tragedy, right? No actual real villains other than Iago and Han. Uh, Garen, despite all his cartoonishly evilness, isn't really even a character. And Anankos himself is a victim of circumstance. So no real villains, right? And that's usually a good thing. But as I kept going through it, I kept thinking, it just doesn't feel right. It feels like that's what was intended, but not what I was actually getting out of the work. So Anankos refuses to monarchate. He refuses to you know, do what is necessary in order to allow himself to not go... And as a consequence, he, he, he trips. He loses himself for just a second, takes out that forest. People react and come after him. He ends up killing his friend, and it just goes downhill from there. Now... <clears throat> Somewhere along the line there, pretty much when he kills his friend, his soul separates. And this is when I have a formal theory that when his soul separated, when when Anankos' soul split out, that was, in classification, if not in literal fact, his own monarchied form. That that was the, let's call it this way, real Anankos. And that the, the dragon that just kept going was just a shell of rage and pain and nothing else, that it had completely succumbed to the delirium because all of his sanity, personality, self, etc. was shifted over. That just brings up one question for me personally. Why did the dragon form keep going? Now, obviously, in actual lore, the soul was not his monarchied. It was just his soul splitting out and turning into a human for some friggin' reason. But that still leaves me with the base question. Why did his dragon form remain? I could see it if the dragon form was a truly mindless entity. Something that was basically at plant level of instinct, or maybe insect level of instinct, right? Just acting and reacting in its own supernatural ways, affecting uh, the people of what was left of Vala, you know, this whole curse thing, taking new people in, maybe occasionally going raw against other things, but otherwise not actually having any true intellect. That I could have bought more, but instead... The dragon Anankos plans, like I mentioned earlier, right? He plans, he devises, he strategizes. He is adaptable to changes in circumstance. There's a lot of intellect being implied there for someone who is supposedly so insane that he's insensate. He's actually quite communicative, despite everything as well. Why? Now, hang on, I'm going somewhere with this, I swear. Uh, I also mentioned the delirium thing because I just have this theory that that's it's a, a more natural than a supernatural thing. 
kind of like we go through. When we get to a certain age, our brains just kind of stop working the way they should, especially if we have a predisposition toward a particular mental illness, right? But anyways, so I mentioned the tragedy, right? You know, Anankos, Garen, Nor, Hoshido. Who are the villains there, other than Iago and Han? Who are the villains, really? But then I started thinking about Xander. And then I started thinking about the people of Vala. And then I started thinking about what the Avatar themselves can do in both of the previous chapters. What so many other characters do uh, throughout the course of these games. And I came to the conclusion that whether intentional or not... The real theme of Fates was... Oh, I can't su summarize it by a single word. So I'm going to try with a sentence instead. That the real theme of Fates was... Decent people are capable of doing horrible things if just one thing goes wrong. In other words, to quote the Joker, all it takes is one really bad day. Because if you look throughout the events and all the characters and most of the ones I just referenced... What happens is just one little thing goes wrong. I'll use the forest, because that's the perfect example. Now, Anankos burning that forest, that's pretty bad. But that was one little thing, one mistake he made. He, he slipped for a minute. And the people, upon seeing that, are immediately like, Oh my god, he's got to die! Just like that. No, no thought of diplomacy, no thought of trying to make this work. Just go kill him. Now, there probably were some people that did that. But, let's look at Xander as another example. Well... You know, I'm not particularly willing to do this, but I'm, I'm going to go and do horrible things because, you know, such and such, right? Let's look at the Avatar and how many people they can kill in the previous two routes. Let's look at the soldiers on both sides of this war, a war that is being fought for basically no good reason. I really feel like the undercurrent message of fate, ironically, is that no matter what people try to accomplish, they are still subject to the whimsy of fate. That no matter how much you try to be a good or decent person, you are still someone who is going to be capable of doing horrible things if circumstance, which is what I'm using here as the word instead of fate, happens to go in that direction. This is also something that I feel is brought up in a sort of a subtext because there's a lot of nurture versus nature going on in some of the backstory, most notably with the Avatar and in Azura, who I haven't really mentioned yet. The Avatar and Azura are both very similar to each other. In fact, they're literally cousins, I believe, in terms of blood. Um, but in both cases, despite coming from very similar circumstances and despite having extremely similar natures, both were nurtured in a completely different format, and what we got was two very different people as a consequence. Not completely the opposite of each other, but two very distinct entities, both of whom could, could accomplish horrible things if they had to. I'm not sure what to make of that overall. As ever, I am curious of your guys' thoughts and what you think of my terrible rumination of this game. Uh, if this ever comes out on Switch, it'll be nice to go through the other two. For now, I must leave you.